Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. On this episode of the podcast, Josh and I talk to Andrew Sullivan, the British-American political commentator and author, about the role of a political commentator in contemporary society, about the internet, blogs, social media, and Substack, and about the art of essay writing, amongst many other things. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm very interested, Andrew, in your long history of political punditry and commentary. Just maybe it'd be interesting for us to hear just how do you relate to this job as a political pundit or as a political commentator? What do you think that job entails? Well, I I hate the word pundit. A pundit is someone who just kind of, I think, delivers what we call takes on the news. I do that quite a lot. (laughs) So I guess I'm guilty as charged. The word I use for myself is just writer. I just find that simpler. It means that I don't have any authority except the logic or persuasiveness or elegance. (laughs) And the people I model myself after, which does not mean that I in any way approach their standards. Uh, For me, you know, George Orwell is the, the great example of the public writer who is trying to think out loud in a way about what's happening in the world and trying to communicate what he sees and understands in as clear and concise a language as possible that's that's understandable uh, to the maximum number of people. So you feel that you can comment or uh, examine any topic? You, you don't think there's any sort of real substantive expertise needed to be a commentator or a writer about public affairs? No. <laughs> there you go. I right. don't. Yeah. There's definitely a role for people who specialize in particular areas. And it's impossible not to. I mean, you, you, you all have your own interests and focus. And, and you will tend to dwell on those issues. Over the years, I've covered a lot of different topics, but I've had periods in which I've been somewhat obsessed with certain topics and areas and, and become kind of well-versed in them simply by virtue of my, my interest. I think the whole point of really being a public intellectual, if that's what I want to call myself, is that you are a non-specialist, that you are a, a citizen making arguments and Andrew, how, how do you select topics? We should say you were uh, formerly editor of the New Republic. You now have your blog, The Weekly Dish. And just curious, when you, you know, start a week, what guides the selection of topics for you? Well, of course, you never know. First thing in the morning, I, I read as much of the news as I can from the sources that I find the most credible. A lot depends upon the time and day that you're writing. 
So for example, a lot of my work in the late 80s and early 90s was dedicated to charting a new politics of homosexuality, which struck me as an important question in order to advance arguments about marriage equality or military service. And that became a slight obsession of mine. There weren't many people making that argument back then, and I felt I could do it. Or similarly, for example, once I realized in the Iraq war that the Bush administration was deploying torture, then that to me becomes a, a primary color issue that I will not let go of until I figured out what on earth is going on. So those are kind of very deep issues, which are ones of core civil rights or human dignity. But then, for example, I gave up blogging for a while because I was exhausted and we got a new pope. In that case, it was Pope Benedict XVI. And I felt I've got to write about that. I'm a Catholic. I've been following theology and uh, Catholicism for a long time. This is a huge and I thought rather worrying development. You know, there's a famous comment by Harold Macmillan, a former prime minister of the United Kingdom. And he said, and he was asked, so what drives your politics from day to day? And he said, uh, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> and I think there's a certain amount of that obviously happening with some themes throughout. So I'm still thinking about the question of homosexuality, even though in a very different context today. You've proved to be very adaptable in kind of negotiating the new media landscape. I just, I worry that people today don't have the patience to read 8,000 words or long form journalism. I mean, I make a point to try to engage that because I get so much more out of it. And there's some people who were formerly fairly prominent writers, but have had a harder time adapting to, uh, again, whether it's, uh, you know, Twitter or uh, or other blogs, uh, Substack and such, but you've you've kind of negotiated that all so well. I wonder how you've managed to do that and whether you think something has been lost by the reduction in significance, you might say, of the kind of long-form uh, essay. I think what happened to me was simply that as the internet began to emerge in the 90s, I was a very early adopter, basically, on everything. I was really fascinated by this. For me as a writer, the ability to directly write to a reader without having an editor or a publisher, and then you also have to juggle the owner of the publication who also might have some kind of thought about this. In other words, as a writer, you are bobbing and weaving and always have publishers, editors. These are people that sit between you and the reader. And what the online revolution did was remove all those intermediary figures and processes, which of course can be very dangerous. I mean, you can lose sanity, you can lose accuracy, you can invent any worlds you want if you have no principles. At the same time, it was incredibly exciting to write an essay or write a post or just vent an opinion and instantly thousands of people would read it, not just thousands of people, but they would instantly tell you by emailing you why you were full of it, why you got something wrong or why they liked this. And that interaction became really exhilarating. I remember the first, among the first things I put up on my blog, which I started in 2000, like 22 years ago now, I got two emails in the first hour 
One was from North Dakota and one was from New Zealand. And <laughs> Oh, a Kiwi. Yeah, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. wait. No, no, Andrew, that's not credible. We didn't have the internet in 2000 <laughs> in New Zealand. We were just moving from carrier pigeons to telegrams. <laughs> well, how exciting is that? And if you've been, I mean, I've been an editor of a, a magazine. I'd written, I've been edited at magazines. And I think to some extent, some of that old essay writing in America in the 70s and 80s had gotten a little portentous. I mean, there was an element in which the New Yorker was sort of giving you a 20,000 word piece on wheat just to sort of dare you into reading the bloody thing. And I think there was an element of that too, which I think the internet shook up a little bit, which I think was a good thing. But then what happened is the blogosphere was a kind of interesting format for dialogue in which we actually developed ideas, exchanged with one another, debated, reestablished principles. Like if we wrote an argument, someone referring to somebody else's argument or article, you always linked to that article so that a reader can compare your criticism with the original. And of course, you know, on when it's in the New Yorker or when it's in, on printed paper, you never had that capability. So there were many positive things about this. But yes, of course, over time, especially with the arrival of Twitter, and what one also noticed on the blogosphere is that what was rewarded was constant distraction and constant entertainment. So that in running the, the Daily Dish for 15 years, we eventually realized that the optimal timing of a piece of blog post was every 20 to 30 minutes. That's what maximized traffic, what brought most people to the thing. Now that is crazy. You can't do that. Um, that's why doing that for 15 years led me to have essentially have to go take a year to recover um, physically and, and mentally. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. And I, but I agree with you. I worry that no one wants to read something in 8,000 words anymore. I'm really interested by the economics of this transition, Andrew, from print media to the internet and the consequences of, of that transition. Were you still working for a regular newspaper when you started your blog? And if you hadn't been working for a newspaper, do you think you could have started a blog and been successful in that way? I'm wondering whether as the online part of the internet and the online part of political commentary takes more and more from print media and so much of it is available for free, whether we're going to see the same number of people or the same quality of output coming through if we don't have people with the sort of stability of salaried positions at newspapers and TV stations and things like that. Well, that's sort of what we're discovering with Substack, really, which is the final iteration of the ability of the writer to earn his or her own living just by appealing to write readers directly. There were plenty of people who started in the blogosphere with no previous newspaper experience or magazine experience who did extremely well. But for most of the original blogosphere, we were paid absolutely nothing at all. I mean, I, I, did, it, I did it for a lot, for years, for nothing, except to build a readership that at the time was thrilling to have for yourself. Then I took that readership, which was a big and engaged and lively readership, and went to various established media and said, why don't you put me on your site and pay me not 
the way you usually pay writers, but pay me uh, proportional to the readership I bring you. And you can sell ads against me or on my page, and you can do whatever you want, but I want to cut. In other words, I'm not going to you as an employer employee anymore. I'm going to you as a partner. So when I went to the Atlantic in 2006, my arrival at their website, Atlantic.com at the time, increased their traffic by sixfold. I personally accounted for the huge majority of traffic going to the Atlantic.com when it started. They used that as a kind of booster rocket to get to a certain level of circulation where they could begin to market it and get advertising and do all the rest of what we've done. Now that then evolved into different models. And I was the first at the dish in 2014, after I'd gone through the Atlantic and then I went to the Daily Beast to say, let's do this, let's put a paywall in, a pay meter. We were the first major online website to institute a paywall and not just a simple paywall, but a one where you would get something, but we tease you for more if you paid. And that was a breakthrough in 2014. And then that model, the subscriber model, then developed and became the ruling. So everywhere now has a paywall. Everywhere teases you with a little content, and then they hook you. The next stage, of course, was then to create a model whereby that could be done for lots of people, which is what Substack has done, which is uh, create a, a financing model of direct reader support. And so now the weekly dish has, we say it's now a newsletter. So it, it gets sent out every Friday as opposed to sitting on the web for people to come, come to you. And we're about 108,000 people we send it out to every Friday, of whom around 19,000 pay 50 bucks a year. So I, after spending 22 years building a readership, and getting other organizations to help pay, I'm now able to do it entirely by myself and without killing myself because they support, they give you a sort of structure where you don't have to do all the nitty gritty yourself. And we had to find a paywall company. We had to innovate. We had to find a way to make it work on the page. We had to do everything before. Now it's all done for you by Substack and you're up and away. It's an amazing transition. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's- as you know, of course, that when I was, I went after the, well, just a very brief history of this is that once I quit doing the Daily Dish and left this readership behind, took a year to just meditate and recover. Then I went back into magazine journalism, a traditional magazine journalism at New York magazine. And then, of course, I hit unknowingly, really, the great woke revolution of the 2015 to 2022 continuing, that meant that suddenly the appeal of your own website with your own income became even greater because the pressures on the individual writer in the mainstream media to conform to certain precepts became so intense that uh, it was impossible to write freely anymore. So uh, in the end, I was fired from New York for not being able to keep in line with their politics, but then went to Substack and uh, tripled my salary. That, that's, that was the weird thing. It's a funny story. It's a fascinating story in a way, but it's, uh, it's just a sign of the revolution in journalism that we've experienced over the past 30 years. I mean, it's one of the themes of the book. My collection is that, you know, I started out on a, 
electric typewriter. <laughs> and now this. On Fleet Street. On the old Fleet Street, the great old yeah. Fleet Street. Andrew, I, I saw your interview uh, recently on 60 Minutes when you were, were talking to, to Scott Pelley, and you, you made a point there. This this follows on this transition you've described from, from New York Mag to, uh, to Substack. You talked about the importance of separating politics from life. I wanted to ask you uh, to kind of dive into that and unpack what you, what you meant by that and why that's such an important principle for you to separate politics from, from life. Well, in some ways, that is a definition of a liberal society. The person who lives in a society who doesn't have to think about politics every day is a free person. If you live an illiberal society, an authoritarian society, some version of tyranny or some version of undemocratic illiberal rule, you have to know what the authorities believe in, what they want you to say before you say anything. You have to cater your views to the views of the regime in case you transgress. So that in, in say, a communist society, there was no private life. You say something in East Germany to your kids at home and it could get back to the Stasi. And for totalitarian ideologies, there's no privacy. The truth is the truth. Similarly, in a theocracy, there's no space for you to say, I'm not sure I believe any of this. You have to at all times. A liberal society says we're going to remove these fundamental questions of how to live your life, what you ultimately believe in, from the political system. And the political system is just going to be a system whereby we arrange how we tolerate and live with one another. So liberalism is really about reducing the stakes of politics. That's why, in some ways, when Trump became president, one of the worst things was you couldn't really spend a day without him entering your mind. Uh, just as in authoritarian systems, you, you, you see pictures of the bloody leader everywhere. Whereas what you really are interested in is maybe a book you just read or live a life where you don't have to worry about him or what he's going to do today because your life depends on the fickleness of this, this person. So a liberal society is where you could have these strong political debates about how you live with one another, but you leave the ultimate questions of meaning to the private sphere so that you can be, for example, a very faithful Catholic without attempting to impose Catholicism on everyone else in your society. And that, to me, is the most precious thing about the West, is this ability to let politics go to let it be. One of the phrases that my mentor, really, my philosophical mentor, Michael Oakeshott, once said that he was a conservative politics in politics so that he could be a radical in every other human activity. Yeah. And Oakeshott, when I, when I think of Oakeshott, I think of, uh, you know, community, actually what you're saying, kind of opposition to dogma, commitment to certain values of a sort, but not in a zealous way, in my sense, from reading you is that you you fear that we as a country have moved at least towards this kind of totalitarian orthodoxy. That, that's the impression I get. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. One of Oakeshott's other phrases that is that a conservative will always choose present laughter over utopian bliss. In other words, you know that society is forever imperfect, that humans are broken 
that we will never be whole <laughs> in a way, that we'll, we won't ever know everything, that we live in a place of epistemic humility, which doesn't mean that life isn't worth living. It means that life is worth living in part because it can't be fully understood. It cannot be fully mastered. And so you delight in it and you engage it. And you certainly see your fellow human beings not as objects to be controlled or directed, but as fellow human beings to be marveled at and enjoyed and be amused by, sometimes horrified by as well, of course. It's an ethos of, of radical toleration and of epistemic doubt. And I think the role of doubt in the West is underrated. My, I wrote a book called The Conservative Soul, which really was an attempt to say, in my understanding of conservatism, it is really a, a reliance upon doubt over faith. In other words, that we know we don't know. And because we know that, we don't have the certainty to impose order on other people. And we also live with a constant knowledge that we could be wrong right now because we've been wrong in the past, because we're humans. And so you, you try and prevent politics from doing terrible damage. You try and enlarge the space for humans to just be. You try and make government effective and efficient so it can get out of the way, so that people can get on with their lives. Now, we can always debate the point at which that is true. You know, how much should the government support uh, people who are in distress or poor or illness and all the other things? And you can create a role for government that is really quite developed and aggressive, as most Western countries do have. But that's not the point of it. The point is to guarantee the ability for human beings to live their lives as they wish. I appreciate that answer. I want to follow this by asking about what seems like the likely overturning of Roe versus Wade in the near future. So we're, we should say, taping this in early 2022. And many of us in the legal academy, and of course others as well, anticipate that the court will either overrule or effectively overrule uh, Roe versus Wade uh, in the next few months. And I'm, I'm curious what you think the kind of impact will be, uh, you know, politically or socially. And more broadly, I would love to hear you talk about whether you think that poses a threat or jeopardizes uh, the legality of gay marriage and, and other rights that the LGBTQ community is, has earned over the years. It's an interesting question because, and, and it helps, I think, shine a little light on liberalism. You know, the abortion is a very difficult moral question. And the one thing I will say about it is that if, if those who say it isn't, that it's absolutely cut and dried, on either side are wrong. There's no way to avoid the essential moral difficulty of this. Now, I am a Roman Catholic, as you know. I personally think, because I can't not, actually, when I think about it, think there is something sacred about a human life at any stage in its development, whether it be at the very end of life, where someone is barely sentient or the very beginning when, when someone is just simply a, a tiny, tiny organism. However, I understand that other people don't believe that. In fact, believe quite emphatically the opposite. So how do we live together? And on a question like this, it becomes incredibly hard because it, it's a question of human life and death 
for some people, it becomes almost close to non-negotiable. And you can see why that would be the case. For me, there is a critical issue here, which is that this human life is inside another human being's body. And a liberal society, the last thing a liberal society would want to do is force a person to do something with their own body that they don't want to do. That is, that is an absolutely awful imposition from the government. So I am effectively pro-choice. And I think almost every modern society has reached some kind of balance in that way. There are some limits you want to put on it to some extent, which are sensible, it seems to me. I mean, the, the total right to abortion anytime and for any reason is not something I think that's most people would think is a sensible approach to this. But the banning of all of it is equally hideous. Now, then you enter the question of the role of the court in all this. You know, I, most Western democracies have resolved this through a democratic process, whereby they come to some compromise. In other words, you can, there's abortion legal up to a certain amount, there are up to a certain amount of time, there are some exceptions at the end, there are, there are some legal regime. Every, the most progressive countries have that. And I don't think if that were to be removed from an understanding of the constitution itself, that it would be such a crisis. In other words, I think, in fact, it might be a good thing to get this resolved at the political level, state by state. The argument for, to answer your second question, that the kind of argument behind Roe versus Wade and the argument behind, say, Obergefell are just very, very different. They rely upon different principles. But the right to marry, similarly, is very, very deep in the Constitution. That's the problem. Just the right to life. And so at some level, courts can be involved. My preference is for some democratic compromise on most of these things, and I think it can be done. So I'm not, maybe it's because I come from a tradition where a Supreme Court doesn't decide these kind of questions. But I also think when the Supreme Court comes into a diverse and liberal society and imposes one very particular view on a topic, it divides the society and it discredits itself. It should try and not do that. Yeah, I should say I should have said for the listeners, you know, the reason why I asked about both of those topics uh, together, as you know, Andrew, is because the doctrine underpinning them is the same to some extent. Well, it, but, but no, I don't. I don't think that, that that marriage equality is rooted in a right to privacy, for example. It's very vague. The Obergefell decision. There's there's debate about it, but there's plenty of arguments to be made that it's not. You're right. Uh, I don't see it as that, to be honest. I think you could see, for example, the sodomy laws as very much about a privacy right. You know, you, they can't come into your bedroom. But marriage equality is a very public thing. And I think it came down to, you know, equal protection in the, in the end. And the acknowledgement that the relationship of a gay couple in 2022 or whatever is legally and actually indistinguishable from the relationships that plenty of heterosexuals have when they enter into civil marriage. And so it becomes an obvious unequal protection. Just fo just following on that, and, and not to make this all a podcast about the Supreme Court, but uh, you know, the court just agreed a couple of days ago to hear a case to resolve this issue that it, it did not resolve in the the masterpiece cake shop case about whether you know individuals serving the public have an obligation to serve same sex couples or whether they can raise a uh, so called sincere religious objection. Right, that that effectively 
allows them to opt out of having to serve same-sex couples. So this is a thing that the court is going to address. Well, that's not quite what they're deciding, If you, I, I don't think. What they're deciding is whether the refusal to write a particular kind of message that you disagree with. In other words, I think we're now down to the artistic freedom argument with this. And I'll shock you by saying I'm basically in favor of the right of religious people not to engage in practices that violate or affirming messages that contradict their own convictions. I don't, I'm in favor of religious freedom and I think it's a bit of give and take. And I don't see the point of trying to force people through the law to do something that their consciences tell them they don't really want to do. And I do think that that's not the same thing. Like if someone refuses to serve a gay couple because they're gay, then yes, that, that violates basically. But if they say, I do not want to write, I support gay marriage on this cake, then we're in a slightly different situation. I agree with the cake maker's right to say whatever he or she wants and to I'm, I'm much more of a libertarian on these questions than many gays. That's interesting because I think the facts of this case involve, I think, a web designer. Yeah. Uh, but it's sim I, similar artist. Yeah. It's, it's about freedom of expression and freedom of conscience. And I, generally speaking, favor that, even for people who really disagree with my fundamental civil rights. I really do. And I think they have a right to say what they want to say. I think that freedom of speech is the freedom to be a bigot. And this is obviously where I'm in extreme conflict with a lot of views about, um, about freedom of speech, but I absolutely believe that. And I've defended that. And I will defend, I defended the right, the right of the Boy Scouts to exclude gay scoutmasters, for example. If it's a private organization, they have a right. Do I approve it? No. Would I do it myself? No. But do I want to live in a society where people I disagree with are coerced? to do things that they don't believe in? No, I don't. And a defense of gay people is also a defense of religious people. You know, the, the right to you know, march down the street proclaiming gay rights is indistinguishable in my mind from the right to right, march down the street attacking gay rights. There's a speech, certainly a speech element to it. I, I guess that the counter would be if you're serving the public in a, in a commercial establishment, then you have entered into a kind of agreement to comply with the laws, at least of that jurisdiction. So if that jurisdiction has a law that requires you not to discriminate against people, then you should have to adhere to that law, again, if you have entered into a commercial relationship. But with respect, yeah. I don't think the questions here are whether you're alive. For example, the cake baker was prepared to sell a, a cake of any kind to a gay couple, just he didn't want to write happy marriage or something. Uh, I can't remember the specifics. So it, if he had been just no gays allowed in here, that's obviously not right. <laughs> so that's not on the, on the issue. The issue is how, how do you balance the freedom of conscience with the freedom of gay people? I think the freedom of gay people is bound up in the freedom of bigots. Andrew, I'd like to speak or ask you something a little bit different issue about contemporary politics and contemporary developments here in the end of February 2022. We've just seen, as you mentioned at the start, you've been thinking about it a lot, Russia's invasion or occupation of certain areas of eastern Ukraine. 
Reading the introduction to your book, I couldn't help but be struck by the way you describe it as a sort of a memoir, almost in a way, collection of essays documenting what you call a post-Cold War moment. Do you worry that not only in perhaps in American domestic politics where you see a sort of creeping liberalism and uh, discourse and speech, but perhaps even in international politics with the rise of uh, China being more assertive on the international stage and now Russia sort of trying to contest some of the post-war settlements, post-Cold War settlements in, in Eastern Europe? Do you think that perhaps we're seeing a transition to a new post-Cold War moment, a more illiberal, perhaps less secure, less free global stage? In a word, yes. I would also say I'm not sure it was ever possible to freeze in place the structures that were set up in 1945 onwards, where essentially the United States was able to construct an international order from a position of extraordinary dominance, except for the Soviet Union, of course. And that set something in place there. And so the architecture was set up to counter the Soviet Union. Once the Soviet Union collapsed, it's hard for me to see how that structure would continue indefinitely. I mean, what is NATO for, for example, once the entity it was constructed to defend against has disappeared? Similarly, it seems to me that after the, immediately after the Cold War, we kind of had what I would call, not just I would call everyone, anyone call a unipolar moment in which the United States had such dominance. There was no rival. And now we have China, essentially. Is, I mean, Russia is not a rising great power. It is a dangerous declining power. China is the real and there's a point at which such powers, with the traditions that they have, certainly a case like China or Russia, with, with this immense civilization behind them, with, with their domination historically of their regions, they are going to want to stretch and flex in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and so the question is, do we, how do we accommodate this? Do you worry about the consequences of these international developments for U.S. domestic politics? I mean, the United States domestic politics around things that you're very interested in, like free speech and open debate, were, of course, decisively infect affected by the Cold War, particularly in the early era of the Cold War. There was suppression of uh, communist aligned or suspected communist trade unions, trade unionists, uh, writers and things like that. Do you worry about uh, more closed international order leading to a more closed United States and, and the effects it could have for people like you, uh, political commentators, writers, etc.? I certainly don't think that any issue around whether you're for or against sanctions on Russia or for or against different strategies with respect to China, I don't yet see those in some ways affecting domestic freedom. I think the biggest threat to domestic freedom of speech is, is the creeping orthodoxies that are being imposed. In a, in a, I mean, this is, this is the feature of American society that, I, that is very interesting, which is that it has always, partly because I think of the separation of church and state, precisely because we don't really have mechanisms imposing ultimate meaning on people from above by government, what you tended to have is a lot of self-generated meaning from below, which is one reason why this country's had such extraordinarily 
vibrant religious history. The trouble with religions and enthusiasms from below is that they can become very paranoid, intolerant. They can seek to punish heretics. And it's, it's astonishing to me how one of the great features of American culture, of culture in this vast continent, surrounded by two vast oceans, is a level of paranoia you might expect from Alsace-Lorraine, you know? I mean, <laughs> they're absolutely terrified of the world. The last thing on earth they need to be terrified is that. So, there's a, so this is the country of the Salem witch trials. It's the country of the Hollywood blacklist. It's the country of the lavender scare. It's the country where the very end of last century, every person who was running a daycare center was accused of being a pedophile. We have these spasms of moral panic in America. And right now, the biggest danger to freedom of expression is this moral panic around uh, critical race, gender, queer theory, in which, in which people regard the specters of systemic racism, systemic homophobia as somehow necessitating a, a crackdown on speech that might enable quote unquote, white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, all the rest of it. In other words, that is, we generate our own tyranny inside a civil society. And we can do that not by government, but by social groups, which is something that John Stuart Mill was very concerned about. And that's where we are right now. The big threat to freedom of expression in this country is not coming from abroad, it's coming from inside. And it's actually coming from the elites who are attempting to impose, in my view, a view of the world which is, you know, defensible, but certainly shouldn't be mandatory. And if you dissent against it, you should be respected as taking a position that is not the same as other people. You should not be stigmatized, ostracized, fired, canceled, subjected to bullying campaigns. You shouldn't be declared a non-person there shouldn't be five minutes hate for so-and-so. I mean, the fact that, you know, we have a figure like JK Rowling, who I, in any other circumstance would be regarded as an international treasure who has written books that engaged a whole generation of young readers in, into writing again, who, who's an extraordinary figure and now has become literally the equivalent of Emmanuel Goldstein in 1984. The New York Times, just ran a com an advertising campaign for itself, which featured a reader that was imagining the Harry Potter books without its author. There's a, an ad out there. That is 1984. It's, it's an attempt to find someone whose principles and ideas are perfectly reasonably expressed, who is not in any way doing anything but dissent on principle from certain ideas and turning them into a hate figure. And that is being done by people who are in the business of liberal society. That is the threat. I'm not worried at all it's in, in comparison to, you know, people saying you're pro-Putin if you disagree with them. I mean, that's still going on, um, obviously, but it's nothing like the power of, of this new orthodoxy being imposed. Andrew, I wish we could keep going, but we want to be respectful of your time. So let me ask you, just in closing, if you have any recommendations for the listeners, whether it's a book, blog, documentary, movie, anything that you would suggest people pick up if they're interested in either the topics you've been talking about or more broadly themes of 
uh, civil discourse? Well, that's a <laughs> that's a question I wish you'd asked me before, so I had time to think about it. But here's what I here's something I would say that I think is worth doing. Are you watching South Park? <laughs> I'm not. No, I am. I am not always, but I am a South Park fan and have been for a long well, time. It and- is. It is the smartest, funniest, sharpest critique of our culture anywhere in media. And it is, it is so good and so funny and so right about where we are that it really should be the most dominant show in America. Now, let me, now I happen to be friends with the creators, so I, I have a little bias in this, full, full disclosure. But I'm friends with them partly because I, I think what they're doing is absolute genius and brave and smart and humane and is massively underrated by people educated who still think of it as some childish cartoon it is not it is swift it is it is it is the most important satire and commentary happening in america today so i would recommend everyone go to hbo max get up the last (laughs) few get up the the pandemic specials from, uh, from usually are people usually recommend you know uh, something like George Orwell or, or you know a, a classic text. So I really appreciate this. this I love the, I love this recommendation, Andrew, because yeah. it's one of these rare moments when my cultural knowledge goes further than Josh's. <laughs> this the the low. I am the I am the podcast expert in the low brow. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. We appreciate it. <laughs> so it's it's actually really highbrow um, <laughs> there you go so even better even better, even better. That, that great combination of high low that that, that 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 we used to love in the 1990s long live the 90s thank you very thank much you so Andrew. much it's been a lot time. of fun thank you it's a real pleasure i appreciate it